Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, as we gather this day together as your people, what a delight to gather around your table. It is the great gift that you have given to your church by way of remembrance, but also by way of anticipation and sure hope. And I pray that as we gather around the table and and consider it this morning, that You will instruct us, but in a way that encourages us, in a way that blesses us, in a way that conforms us more truly, more tightly to Jesus our Lord. And as we are bound to him, so also bound to one another in the bonds of love. So help us in this time Give us ears to hear. Grant to us undistracted, focused minds. And we ask that your good spirit would meet each one according to his need, according to his understanding, according to his measure of faith. Father, we gather in your name. We consecrate this time to you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in it by our glorying in the Son through the leading of your Spirit. And so it's in the name of our triune God that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, last week we considered the first of the exhortations of the Hebrews writer as he closes out his epistle Uh, This obligation of love, let love for the brethren continue. And with this being our monthly uh, communion celebration, celebration of the Lord's table today, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to flesh that out a little bit more, this, this idea of the continuing love of the brethren, specifically as it pertains to the table because the table is probably uh, the greatest practical uh, thing that the church does that testifies to this life, shared life, this oneness that we have in Jesus our Lord. So the Lord's table, I think, is the perfect opportunity to give a little bit deeper, further consideration to this obligation of love that we looked at last week. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, well, there's really no better place to turn to for that sort of consideration than Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, specifically chapter 11. Paul wrote to them to actually rebuke and correct them, but providentially, if he had not done that, if this occasion hadn't arisen, we wouldn't really have much instruction in the scriptures concerning the table itself, uh, how it was practiced in the early church, and how even it should be understood, apart from connecting certain theological uh, hermeneutical dots throughout the New Testament. This context is the best insight that the scripture gives us into the table and how we should think about it. And as I said, it really takes the form of a rebuke. Uh, the, the Corinthians' practice of the table was just another symptom of the fundamental natural-mindedness of the congregation. Paul used the, the language of the Corinthians that they were acting as mere men. They were acting as men of flesh. They were effectively denying the truth of who they were in Christ, both individually as well as collectively. 
And you see this throughout uh, the epistle as he deals with things going on with them. And uh, this natural mindedness uh, is reflected in their conduct, but specifically, most narrowly, in their relationship with one another, in, in the various facets of that relationship. So they regarded themselves clearly as followers of Jesus. And Paul begins the epistle by commending them in the sense of all that they've been given. They have no lack of gifts. They have no lack of knowledge. They have no lack of the grace and the provision of God in the Messiah. And yet, they were relating to one another as natural men. And as I've said, this idea of naturalness, the way that we are naturally as human beings, is most basically characterized as uh, um, an approach to life defined by me, and not me. There is me, and then there is everything that is not me. And everything outside of me is viewed, perceived, assessed, and interacted with according to my sense of the value, the devalue, the goodness, the badness, the profitability, the uselessness of those things. It's life in our own minds, but life in our own minds such that I become the judge, I become the determiner, I become the assessor of all things. It's life in my own mind as my mind exists in alienation from God, in alienation from the truth of myself. Not life in my own mind as my mind is the mind of Christ, the mind of the Father. Jesus lived in his own mind, as all human beings do, but a mind that was synced with his father. So Paul indicts the Corinthians for their natural mindedness by still operating according to this principle of me and not me. Me and everything that is outside of me. And you see this in in the way that their relationships were at odds with one another. You see it in the way that they approached discipleship. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And Paul said, what are you doing? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for your sins? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What are you doing? Christ is one. You see it in the way that they were dealing with issues of sexuality, embracing one another in a self-gratifying way, even to a complete disregard for propriety in the church and the stumbling of other believers. You see it in the way they were handling grievances with one another, legal issues, taking one another to secular courts to determine who was right, who was wrong. And Paul says, it doesn't matter whether you prevail in court or not. You've already lost. Because by taking one another before pagan courts, you are lying against the truth of who you are in Christ. Is there not someone among you who can help you sort these things out? Don't you know that we're going to judge angels? They were at odds in terms of those sorts of issues. You see them at odds with one another in terms of issues of liberty. Taking their liberties in Christ and allowing those liberties to cause their brothers and sisters to stumble. And Paul said that liberties, as all things, are subject to love. If your liberty is stumbling your brother then you are acting contrary to love. You see it in terms of their spiritual gifts. Rather than the gifts being endowments of the spirit to serve one another, and this is a very common problem in the contemporary church, we take spiritual gift tests to see what my gift is, and it becomes a way in which I'm distinguished from the rest of the body. Here's my gift. Here's who I am. It becomes a part of our identity. And the gifts are endowments that are given to people with nothing of concern for those people in terms of the Spirit's concern, but they're endowments of the Spirit for the sake of the others. 
And the Corinthians were using these gifts, which Paul says the Spirit has fully gifted you with these graces of God, but they become a way for you to distinguish yourselves from one another. I'm a this, I'm a that. And so you see how this dynamic of natural mindedness was playing out with the Corinthians in all of these dimensions of the life of the church. And one of the ways, and that's specifically today, that you see that fleshliness, that natural mindedness playing itself out was in the way that they were observing the Lord's table. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll pick this up at verse 17. Paul says, but in giving this instruction, and he's talking about the instruction that is coming, what it is now that he's going to speak to. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. He's saying it's really difficult for me to believe it. But I have to. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. And therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What, don't you have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? No, in this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was handed over, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep, a number have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged by the Lord. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. We don't know what those things are. The Corinthians obviously did. But the Corinthian situation is very helpful. Again, Paul is rebuking them for their practice, but it's very helpful in us understanding how the table should be viewed and how it can be abused. And the main thing that Paul is pointing to here again, which was characteristic of the church, is that it was characterized by schisms and factions. Schisms is kind of a more general term, and it just refers to the idea of divisions in in kind of a general sort of way. Factions is the term uh, hierases. We get heresies from it, and we've kind of been conditioned to think of heresy in terms of doctrinal incorrectness, doctrinal error. But in the first instance, uh, hierases refers to divisions that involve forming of factions, parties, groups. And then it refers to differences or distinctions, divisions within 
doctrinal truths or departure from the truth. But with respect to the Corinthians, this idea of factions is not so much, you know, you're a Calvinist, you're an Arminian or something. It's not that kind of idea. The factions that he's saying existed amongst them was them forming groups. Discipleship associated with certain men. Forming groups around gifts, around uh, things that, that partition them into different categories or different groupings of people. And Paul says that it is both a fact and it is necessary that these things would exist among you. Inevitable because of human limitation. Until we are fully conformed to Christ, there is always going to be some quality of me and not me. But he also says it's necessary because in this way, it enables the church, God to testify in the church to those who are approved. And in the first instance, I don't think Paul is saying this shows who's saved and who is not saved. But it's a way to distinguish those who are walking according to the truth as it is in Christ and those who are contradicting the truth as it is in Christ. That pattern of division, that pattern of faction, that pattern of schism was also marking their observance of the table. The issue is not so much their practice, although Paul does speak to that, but it's the mindset that led them to practice the table in the way that they did. That's the issue that Paul is concerned with. He says, when you come together as Christ's ecclesia, Christ's uh, assembly of believers, one purpose for which in that gathering is the celebration of the supper, I've told you that your fellowship is characterized by schisms. I've been, I've, I'm telling you that, and I've been told that by others, and it's hard for me to believe that that could be the case. It's inconceivable to me that that could be the case, but I've been told that, and I have to believe it. But Paul was outraged that that would be the case. And it's important to understand again, and you have to kind of read between the lines, but the way the early church did this thing called the Lord's Table... The church, typically when it came together, its worship wasn't centered around preaching. Its worship wasn't even centered around singing. It wasn't, uh, it, their worship together wasn't what we tend to think of. But the centerpiece of their gathering was a meal. What has come to be known as the agape feast or the agape meal. You see Jude referring to the love feasts. They came together around a meal, but part of the celebration of that meal, often history seems to record, uh, the climax of that meal was this thing called the observance of the Lord's Supper. So the meal wasn't the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper was a specific focused climax of that meal. But they're gathering together, which had instruction, which had prayer, which had singing, but it was centered around a communal meal. And in many instances, that was a daily function in, in, in the early church. And this seems to have continued to some extent, at least up to the time of Constantine, the early fourth century. Well, that sort of table fellowship was a way for the church to affirm and express its oneness as a community. That the body of Christ is one. And specifically in the meal idea, say, okay, well, why, why does a meal matter? What's the big deal with that? In Christ, all distinctions that would separate one from another. And that doesn't mean, you know, there's no longer uh, male people and female people or whatever. Not that those distinctions have gone away in the ultimate sense. But all distinctions by which people are separated and ranked. Those are removed in Christ. That's what Paul means when he says, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all and is in all. He has formed a new human family in which former distinctions by which people are separated or distinguished or ranked 
And as I've said, human existence is always hierarchical as we know it. From an organizational chart to who's in charge of this, who's in charge of that, where do you fit into the pecking order? And all of that has been done away in Christ. And the agape, the shared meal climaxing with the Lord's table, attested that truth to the community of believers and to the watching world. And it's very important because in the ancient world, people, meals were a way in which that distinction was made very evident. Where you sat at the table, whether you were allowed to sit at the table, you would not have slaves sitting at the same table with freemen, with citizens. You would not have women sitting in a place of prominence at a table. That the way in which people gathered to eat a meal was a way that they testified to who's on top, who, you know, where do you fit in the pecking order? You see that in the animal world with, with a wolf pack. They eat in the order of who, who's the alpha male and where do they, and when do the females eat and how does that all, and it was the same thing in human culture in the ancient world. So these common meals were a way to testify to the truth that in Christ there is no male, female, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But this agape was a very simple fare. As best as we understand it, the people would bring their, they would bring food. Everybody would contribute. Everybody would be a kind of potluck, if you will but a very simple meal because the issue wasn't the food. The issue wasn't the elaborate layout. The issue was the koinonia, the fellowship of believers, and specifically the high point in the Eucharist, the table itself, the, the, the Lord's Supper. But the meal was provided by all the members as they were able, and it was shared together among them. Well, over time, and and even by the time of this epistle, you had developments in the church that that were losing, compromising that commonality. You had more people from the various strata of society becoming believers. You had slaves, you had freemen, you had more Gentiles coming in. You had women coming in. You had uh, all kinds of different people becoming believers. There was increasing economic, social, cultural diversity in the local communities of believers. Initially, the church was all Jewish and proselytes to Judaism, but it's becoming a more eclectic cosmopolitan community over time. You had, as church bodies, groups became larger, you had need for larger accommodations. The people didn't own buildings. They didn't worship in church buildings. They worshiped and gathered in homes. And there are records of how, you know, in, in, in ancient Roman homes, homes of that time, you would have outside porticos, you would have inside dining rooms, and now you got this need to get a bunch of people into homes which were small compared with what we have today. And where does this person sit and where does that person sit? So you got some people who are outside in the portico. You got some people who are at the main dining table where the host would host his dinner parties with the people that were of his social class or his social strata. So now people are being separated even physically as they're gathering. Diversity of members meant diversity of foods. As people brought what they could bring, you had wealthier people, you had poorer people. You had people coming out of different cultures, so you have a more eclectic bringing of food, and in many cases, a more elaborate meal. And that tended to ensure if if you had wealthy people bringing a bunch of sumptuous fare, and then you have poor people who can bring next to nothing or can bring nothing, now you're creating this kind of distinction, and people are feeling shameful. They're they're feeling embarrassed. They're feeling ashamed. And so whether it was an intentional, whether it was intentional or not, over time the church had to work harder to preserve the the meaning, the significance, what, what the agape meal with the Eucharist was intended to communicate. 
And it was that way at Corinth. But Paul sees it as something that is more than just inadvertent. There, there is actually a mindset behind it. They were experiencing in their gatherings separation of persons, distinction in food, dis- distribution, and even where, how they were eating the meal, where they were sitting, all of that. And again, Paul recognized that that represented, it reflected a mindset contrary to the truth as it is in Christ. They were lying against the truth. So he condemned the Corinthian agape with its climax in the Lord's Supper as obscuring, as defiling, and even denying the true koinonia in Christ that those things were intended to testify to. And he says, for that reason, you have incurred guilt before God. He says, you are answerable to the body and the blood of Christ. You are answerable to the body and the blood of Christ. You are eating in an unworthy manner. And the issue isn't you're coming to these tables uh, with sin in your life. It's not unworthiness in that sense. It's not about private personal failings, whatever those things might be. It's about the corporate sin of coming in an unfit and in an improper manner, gathering together in an improper way. He says that your unworthiness is your wrongful judging of the body. And scholars debate whether, you know, Paul is saying Christ the body of Christ, in other words, you're despising uh, the physical body of Jesus that was given for you or whether he's talking about the church. And I think in the context, certainly as you go wider, the focus is on the church as the body of Christ. And that becomes very evident even in the next chapter where he says Christ is one and yet Christ is many. He has many members, his body. Both are implicated because even if it's wrongly judging the body of Christ by implication, they're wrongly judging Christ himself because his body is his fullness. But the focus is on them misjudging the church, wrong judging of the body. They demonstrated that by the way they were violating the truth of the church's nature and its solidarity. Their practice was lying against the truth of what the church is. Whatever they may have thought, whatever they may have believed about themselves, whatever they may have believed about the community of believers at Corinth, their practice was lying against the truth. They failed to rightly judge the church, the body, and therefore they were failing also to rightly judge themselves. And Paul says that God's response was the response of jealousy for his church. He said, because of this, many of you are infirmed, sick, and have even died. That's a pretty shocking thing to think about. That the way in which they were approaching the table, what's the big deal? Just because these people are sitting out there and these people are sitting in here. Just because, you know, the food isn't being distributed in, uh, you know, a, a kind of equitable way. Just because you have some people eating ahead of others. What's the big deal? God would actually take people's lives over that. The big deal is how seriously God takes the church and its truthfulness, its truthful witness in the world. I wanted to read this to you. Again, this is out of Torrance's work talking about the church. He says, the oneness of the church is grounded in the incarnation and in the atonement of Jesus In Jesus the Messiah, the one word of God by whom all men and women were made and in whom all men and women cohere, became flesh and incorporates into himself all who believe, compacting them together into one universal body. It is a oneness which he has formed and created out of broken and divided humanity, a oneness which derives from his own atoning and reconciling work in overcoming all division between God and man and between man and fellow man. 
Thus, the oneness of the church among its members derives from the oneness of the church with God, wrought out in atonement through the blood of Christ. The very existence of the church is grounded in the overcoming of division. The very existence of the church is grounded in the overcoming of division, in the abolishing of the disunity between mankind and God, the estrangement, the enmity, and the overcoming of the enmity of sin in the separation of guilt. Just because the unity of the church is rooted and grounded in the incarnate and atoning work of Christ, it, the unity of the church, can no more be destroyed than can the incarnation and atonement. Or that God could go back upon the death of his dear son. The church's unity cannot be destroyed any more than the incarnation and atonement can be undone. But for the same reason, for the people of God to live in disunity, for the church to allow the divisions of the world to penetrate back into its life, is to live in disagreement with its own existence. To lie against the truth. To call into question its reconciliation and to act as a lie against the atoning work of the Messiah. A divided church is something so terrible that it reaches back behind the church to its constitutive relation to God, to its own faith in Jesus the Messiah himself. Is Christ divided? As there is only one Christ and one atonement, there can only be one church united in Christ. Therefore, a disunited church is an attack upon Christ himself and a direct contradiction of what God has accomplished in him. That's why what seems to be not a big deal with the table at Corinth has God responding with bringing sickness and infirmity and even death as a means of chastening them, as a means of correcting them, as a means of rebuking them. How seriously does God take the unity of the church, its common bond in love, that seriously? It's not a negotiable thing. It's not an abstract thing. And so what then do we make of this table as we come to it today? That's the Corinthian experience. We see how God responded to it. What is this thing called the Lord's table? How do we understand it? Well, it is the way in which Jesus, by his self-offering, fulfilled the Passover event. We can't understand the table if we don't understand Israel's Passover. As I've said so many times, Jesus picked Passover for the time of his self-offering. And the, pass, the sort of Passover meal, the transformation of a Passover meal, is the way in which Jesus showed the significance of what was coming the next day. He said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And what we call the upper room discourse, that shared meal, is Jesus interpreting his coming death and resurrection and what it would accomplish through the lens of Israel's Passover and its significance. Well, what was the Passover about? It concerned God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. I've remembered my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm bringing the people out. The Passover was the means of liberation from captivity the end of Israel's exile. It brought about their covenant union and mutual abode, mutual abiding with God as father and sons. But God promised a new Passover, another Passover. He promised a second exodus that would actually bring into actual realization what the first Passover had only prefigured. Thus, when Israel came into the land, they were to continue observing the Passover throughout their generations. Because it held forth the promise of a day when the things it spoke to, liberation, cleansing, covenant, uh, covenant renewal or covenant establishment, 
the binding together, the bringing a people to be with God as one people, the Son, to dwell with God in his dwelling place. And so Israel was to keep the Passover throughout its generations because it was looking to another fulfillment to come. Well, even at the time that Jesus came into the world, Israel was still waiting for that second exodus, a renewed Passover. And Jesus takes that and he now ties it to his own work. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is my body that is broken for you while they're breaking the bread, the Passover bread. His sacrificial death, his resurrection fulfilled that promise of God to Abraham and the memorial meal that Jesus established, what we call the Lord's Supper, affirms that fulfillment. It celebrates that fulfillment and it clarifies it. The ideas of deliverance, life in gathering, sonship by consuming the Messiah. Remember in John 6 where Jesus said, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The context there was the Jews following Jesus, thinking that he's going to feed them again, give them more bread. He had fed them over on the other side of the sea. They follow him across, and they're thinking he's going to give them bread again. And he says, that bread that Moses gave you and and the bread even that I gave you, I mean, that bread is not the ultimate bread. I am the true bread that comes down out of heaven. I give my life for the life of the world. You eat this bread, you have life in you. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats me in that way has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Already proleptically, Jesus was referring to the significance of his death. And the table is a commemoration of that truth. A partaking in the whole Christ, body, blood, partaking in the whole Christ, not just to be forgiven, but to be sharers in his life. To become a part of a new human family, a new human community that is one as he is one with the Father. That's why it's so critical that the table be observed in a way that testifies to the truth. It has to be partaken in a way that testifies to what Jesus has accomplished in the forming of a new human community in him that are one as he is one with the Father. So it has three dimensions to it. And and you see this here even as Paul speaks. First, it looks to the past. It remembers Christ's death. It remembers his death, but not just the fact that he died and not just the fact that he died to atone for the sins of sinners, um, but his death as again viewed through the lens of the Passover. The Passover ordinance itself wasn't so much about the slaying of the lamb or even the applying of its blood. It was about what that action represented, what it secured, what it was really all about. What the Passover was about was that God is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to his promises. And it would be manifested in this work of mighty deliverance, deliverance, provision, fatherly love in gathering to himself a people and communing with them as their God and their father. That's what Passover was about. And so when we look at the death of Jesus, we have to look at it through that lens. It's the way in which God would ultimately reconcile all things to himself. Not just saving individuals for an individual future in heaven. And we tend to think that way. We tell people, if you were the only person on the planet, Jesus would have died for you. And it's very misleading. I understand the reason for saying that, but it's very misleading. The goal of God was never to save a bunch of discrete individual people for a discrete individual future in heaven, doing what they want in heaven forever, if they want to golf or ski or do whatever they want to do. It wasn't that. 
It was to form a new human organism, a new human community through which his own life, his own love, his own reign would be manifest in his creation, the summing up of everything in the Messiah. It's a holistic work. Does it involve individuals? Yes. Are we individually saved? Yes. Do we individually have the gift of the Spirit? Yes. But to be spiritual stones built into a spiritual house, in that way to offer acceptable sacrifices to God. Together, the dwelling of God in the Spirit. So Paul says the table looks back to the death of Christ. Why is it, what is he telling the Corinthians? It looks back to the death of Christ in a way that indicts the way you're observing the table. Because what the death of Christ did was end the enmity, end the division, end the distinctions, end the me and not me, and put all of that to death to form a whole new pattern of creational existence bound up in a new human family, bound together, members of one another as the father and sons are members of each other. And that's why he says, we remember the Lord's death, but it also has a future orientation, the Lord's coming. We remember his death until he comes, until he comes. The promise of sonship in Yahweh's presence, which was what the Passover was all about, if you will, in the Genesis language, it was inheriting God's rest to be with him in his dwelling place, All of that was awaiting a fulfillment in Israel's experience. They came into the land, but they kept observing the Passover because they hadn't really obtained that which the Passover spoke of. That was realized in Jesus himself. And so when we observe the table, we are remembering what Jesus has accomplished, which Israel was still looking forward to as future fulfillment. We see already what he's done, but we also look to the consummation to come. The renewing of all things. And so there's a purpose in the table. It tells us who we are, but it also tells us where this is all going and where to live in light of that. Where to live in light of that. And so the past and the future orientation define for the church that what the table does is define for the church in that way the present. What is it to be God's people in the present? It's recognizing that the Messiah in his own enthronement, in his own glorification, Jesus is the church's essential life and truth. He is really in himself the essence of the church. The church is the church in him. It has its life. It has its substance. It has its truth in him. And Jesus is the church's animating, sustaining, directing power by his presence in the spirit. This is what you see in Revelation 1 through 3, right? The Messiah is in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is in the midst of the church. He's not off someplace in some distant place. In his spirit, he is present in the midst of his church. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as this table reminds us of who we are based on what Jesus has done, and it tells us what our destiny is, it also informs our present mission. It informs the church's mission. What does it look like to live the Christian life? What does it really mean to live the Christian life? Well, our mission in the most general terms, and I'm not going to say more than this today, is to be servants and co-laborers in God's work of advancing his own kingdom in the world. Even the picture in Zechariah's prophecy of the enthroning of the high priest or the crowning of the high priest is that this one who is branch will build Yahweh's dwelling place. But he will do it by gathering men, people from north, south, east, and west, and then becoming instruments in him building his house, his dwelling place. 
We are co-laborers with the Spirit in this work of building God's kingdom. The church is the truth of this new creation that's in the Messiah. And that's what it's to be testifying to. So as we get ready to come to the table then, again, what does it look like for us to rightly partake in the table in view of all of these things? Well, the same jealousy that God had at the 2,000 years ago with the Corinthians, he still has today. God takes the communion of his saints, the common union of his saints, just as seriously today as he did then. It is not anything to trifle with today any more than it was then. The church has to be partaking in this thing, celebrating this table in a way that testifies to the truth as it is in Christ. And if you even go from this into chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, you will see how Paul deals with the body as one. The body as one in the Messiah. But the obligation of love, the obligation of oneness, the obligation of no divisions, no distinctions, no ranking, even in our hearts, even in our minds, that obligation continues and the accountability continues. We don't observe the table in the way the Corinthians and the early Christians did, but we can still lie against its truth. We can still lie against the table The father's concern is that his children live out the truth of being sons in the son. So how do we violate the table? We do so any time that we approach it. And it doesn't mean just in what we actually do, but in how we think, what's going on in our heads. Any time that we approach the table in a way that undermines, contradicts, denies the true and the essential unity of Christ's body. That's fundamental to the message of the table. Well, what might that look like? Well, one thing that that I've seen in practice is churches that will not allow access to the table unless you are a member of that particular congregation. Not allowing access to the table for people who have not been baptized by that particular congregation. In other words, restricting the table in a way that speaks to this us and not us, me and not me. Going beyond the criterion of are you a member of Christ to are you a member of this particular congregation? Were you baptized in this congregation? Do you hold to this confession? Are you a part of this denomination? That's one way in which we can be guilty of the Corinthian abuse of the table. Any time that we nurture, a second example is any time that we nurture an introspective approach to the table. And I've known churches that do this. It becomes this thing of, okay, before you come to the table, you've got to now turn your head inward and search yourself and see if there's any unconfessed sin in your life and make sure that you've dealt with all your sin because you, before you come to the table. And people will actually turn to Paul's second Corinthian uh, epistle where he says, examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. And they say, okay, that's what you have to do. It becomes this inward introspective thing. Well, Paul's not even talking about that. If you go and you read that 2 Corinthians 13. But the point is, is that a lot of churches have this time of self-examination that becomes very individual and self-oriented, self-focused. A self-centered, individualistic approach to the table rather than a Christ-centered and therefore a body-centered orientation. And I would add to that just as a kind of capstone, any way that we would order, think about, administer the table, any way that we would go about it in in the way that we order or administer it or think about it that suggests or expresses or in any way encourages notions of distinction or independence among the members of the body. 
I remember being in a, in a worship service one time and, you know, they had their 45 minutes of the praise and worship time with the praise music and they had the elements down front and just whenever people felt like it, they came down front and got the elements and took them and then went and sat back down. That's an example of what I'm getting at, where you are actually nurturing in people's mind an individualistic, personal approach to this. If you do the Lord's table in your home as just your family or just as a couple, this is a body ordinance. There's a reason for it, because it testifies again to what Christ has done and what he is ultimately doing towards the summing up of everything in him. So for our meditation then, what I'd like to do, and I didn't write this out, I I thought that I probably should have done that, but if you just want to listen to these words and think about this, this is kind of the meditation I would like for us to spend a couple minutes thinking about uh, before we then come to the table. Again, this is Torrance speaking, and he says, As people who are baptized into Christ, we are told by God's word that our sins are forgiven and forgotten by God, that, they, that we have been justified once and for all, and that we do not belong to ourselves, but to Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. As people who are summoned to the holy table, We are commanded by the word of God to live only in such a way that we feed upon Christ. That's what the table tells us. It tells us that we live only in such a way that we feed upon Christ, not in such a way that we feed upon our own activities or live out our own capital of alleged spirituality. We're not living on our own capital, our own accomplishments, our own spirituality. We feed upon the Messiah. We live from week to week by drawing our life and our strength from the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. And in the strength of that communion, we must live and work until Christ comes again. As often as we partake of this Eucharist, we partake of the self-consecration of Jesus, the Messiah, who sanctified himself for our sakes, that we would be sanctified in reality and that we would be presented to the Father as those whom he has redeemed and perfected and consecrated together with himself in one. Here at the table, we are called to lift up our hearts to the ascended Jesus and to look forward to that day when this same Lord Jesus will come again and when the full reality of our new being in Christ will be fully unveiled, making scripture and sacrament no longer necessary, but our God will be all in all. Amen.